Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's really, really haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, the podcast, Hollywood's haunted. Welcome to Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast, where we discuss everything from hauntings and murders to the evil underbelly of Tinseltown. Our hosts today are Jameson in Connecticut. Hello. Tia. Tia on the bed. Sitting on her bed. <laughs> Uh, that's that's the name of our studio, the bed. The bed. Yeah, the bed. <laughs> Which is probably the size of our original studio. That was our bed. And Pat sitting on the kitchen. And oh, that's chair. right. Yeah, I'm the third host. Pat, Pat <laughs> on the kitchen chair. Um, but yeah, welcome. Uh, hope you guys are ready for this one. Yeah, uh, it's gonna be a doze as usual. Um, yeah, that's right. I guess today's theme is uh, airplanes. <laughs> Airplane, okay. Right. Or, uh, you know, <laughs> aviation, in theory, and the aviator. Um. <laughs> Dropping bombs. Yeah. Uh, so my story, I'm pretty excited to tell. Uh, I learned this story working as a tour guide at Universal Studios. Um, if I haven't talked about it on the podcast before i had the wonderful job uh previously to be a studio tour guide for the world famous universal studios tour in hollywood Mm -hmm. Uh, i was the person on the microphone as you go around the back lot so uh, i also did it during halloween so we all we got to learn a few creepy stories about the back lot and um, i'm going to share one of them with you uh today that actually took place uh the tragedy took place during the opening ceremonies of Universal Studios. So most theme parks, they claim that like nobody's died on property. Like Disneyland says nobody's died on property. Yeah, right. they, when someone passes away, because people do die there, uh, they usually say the time of death after they've left the property. Really? Yeah. Like most so, amusement parks yeah. or Disney does it specifically? Disney specifically, I know Universal kind of is like very, it's weird because they're very hush-hush about like the negative things that have happened. Uh, They're not perfect and it's an industry. So like, you know, things are not great. I mean, when you got like roller coasters and, you know, explosions and shit, you're supposed to be, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, But (laughs) someone's going to die Which is so funny because like. We're not supposed to talk about those things, but then come Halloween, we're encouraged to talk about those things. That's hilarious. Uh, So they're like, nobody's died on property, but this happened like day two of Universal. So uh, ever. Um, So if you don't know what Universal Studios is, uh, you probably live under a rock, but... But uh, it's a amusement park here in Hollywood that is also a movie studio. It's one of the first movie studios in California. They claim that they're the first. They uh, signed the deed two weeks before Paramount did. So technically, they're the first one. Well, they were, uh, like, they were the first like big studio, I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Uh, and Universal is an actual city. As well, we have our own zip code, our own fire station, and even our own police station. Unless Look. unless someone dies, then Universal City doesn't exist. Yeah, right. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. He, uh, they died in L.A. But it is true. There is firefighters <laughs> on property. We have medical services on property. It's a lot quicker if something happens for us to have our own medical there than to have the outside 
medical that they always tell us don't dial 911 dial i now i can't remember what it was but <laughs> Which great, is great. Yeah, wonderful is great <laughs> wonderful <laughs> dial 639 444 anyway so uh i'm just going to start from the beginning with this story uh about the starting of universal studios now most of my information did come from working at the studio tour and from our pan our uh, handbook that we have which is 300 pages long and, and we have to memorize. Um, wow. Yeah. This Woo-hoo! is going to be really long. This, buckle, I'm just it is, <laughs> so being a studio tour guide is known, being a studi- studio tour guide is known as the hardest minimum wage job that you can get in Hollywood. <laughs> so it it's about a month of training uh, and it usually goes from about a thousand people to audition over time, whittling down to about 15 people. That That's they a take. super coveted position. Super yeah. coveted. Yeah. And it's there's a lot of competition. So I'm pretty sure I got an ulcer uh, by the end of training and my hair thinned out. That's true. Yeah. Um, but uh, I got some of my information from a book called Early Universal City. It's a series of books uh, by Robert Burchard. Uh, he does Early Paramount and a couple other studios as well. Uh, so it's a great book and it has a lot of pictures in it, but most of my information came from a wonderful YouTuber, uh, named Antonia Carlotta. Uh, she does a series called Universally Me. She is actually the great grandchild of Carl Lemley. Oh, crazy. So she's wonderful. She has a lot of pride. Uh, so a couple episodes ago i talked about mgm studios and uh oh god what was his name metro goldwyn and mayor louis b mayor and how pretty awful (laughs) he was and how awful their opening ceremonies were yeah it was pretty dark uh carl lemley is like the opposite of him carl lemley is actually a great guy uh so carl lemley he's a german-born immigrant uh, and he started one of the first motion picture theaters, uh, in the United States in 1906. Uh, at the time, Thomas Edison, who, if you do your history, is kind of a crappy person as well. Uh, he definitely stole the patent for the motion picture, right. uh, or the motion picture camera. Uh, he stole it from a French man whose name escapes me, of course, because no one has heard of him. Yep. Um, and he also had a monopoly over motion picture movie making. So basically you had to get permission and pay taxes to Thomas Edison in order to make a movie uh, on the East Coast. He had like this monopoly on all of New York, basically. So Carl Lemley was like not about that. He was like, I just want to make movies. I don't want to have to, you know, get permission and attest to Thomas Edison with everything I want to do. I just want to like go. I want to own the property. I want to make movies. So he definitely challenged Thomas Edison a lot. And uh, he, uh, Carl Lemley created uh, the Independent Moving Picture Company, uh, which was kind of like a no-no. You don't create your own independent moving picture company. Everything had to be under Thomas Edison's uh, motion picture patent company. Uh, So one thing that Carl Lemley did that especially pissed off Thomas Edison is that he would promote stars in the movies. 
So he was the one who kind of came up with the billing of like, this is a Mary Pickford film, you know, in Uh blah, blah, blah movie, instead of billing the movie and the movie company. And Thomas Edison was not about that because this gave the, um, the leverage for these movie stars to kind of fight for more income. Like my name is attached to your film. I should be getting paid more than most of the people involved in this film, you know? And so that's something that kind of pissed off, uh, Thomas Edison. So, uh, in 1912, he creates one of the first, uh, movie studios on the East coast, uh, called, uh, universal film manufacturing company, uh, the independent moving picture company, as well as what it was called, uh, in Fort Lee, New Jersey. But his original intention was to have one studio on the East coast and one studio on the West coast. This is Carl, correct? Carl Lemley. Yes. Okay. Uh, but he realized very quickly that having both studios was going to be very expensive. So he decided to ditch his, uh, studio on the East coast, leave Thomas Edison behind, you know, and come all the way over to the San Fernando Valley and create a movie studio over here. Um, also it would be much harder for Thomas Edison to sue him, uh, for breaking, you know, the monopoly or breaking the motion picture patent, you know, that Thomas Edison just thought that he owned everything and that he could control it. So, uh, Carl Lemley basically was like, let him try to sue me. I'm going to be across country, you know? And so, uh, he, uh, his first studio was on sunset and Gower, which would later be Columbia pictures. It is still a movie studio that is there called the sunset Gower studios. Um, I think it's owned by Paramount, but I'm not sure. Um, I'm pretty sure that's where they filmed Judge Judy, because I've been there a few times. Uh, then he purchased... where Edward Gray died? Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Remember we talked about that? From earlier. Cool. Uh, then he purchased the Oak Crest Ranch in San Fernando Valley. Uh, and then he spent $165,000 on a 20, or on a... $165,000 on a 230-acre chicken ranch where Universal Studios stands today. So Chicken ranch, huh? Yeah. Uh, And funny thing is they kind of kept the chicken ranch there for quite some time, uh, and they would sell eggs and chicken lunch because he wasn't sure if, like, the motion picture thing was going to work out, so he had that as a little bit of supplemental income. Mm. Uh, for is that, a is part that what of it, Doc Brown's chicken was. Really? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> uh, so the opening ceremony for Universal City, uh, which he planned this big movie studio that was going to be a city at the same time, uh, was supposed to be a three-day event. Pre- uh, preceding the three-day event, Carl Lemley went to New York City, he boarded a train at Grand Central Station, and for 10 days, he rode across country to California, picking up fans and his family and various fans (laughs) and his family and various people that uh, he wanted to come and be here for the opening ceremonies. There's a big banner in front of the train, and uh, it was just a big publicity event for these 10 days leading up to the opening ceremonies. Hmm. Uh, 
there, according to uh, early Universal, there was about 10,000 people to attend these opening ceremonies. So that's kind of a lot, you know. There, no, that's, that is a lot, yeah. You know, saying that uh, California was, you know, uh, or Hollywood was pretty brand new at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so fun fact about Carl Lemley is uh, he, well, I said he was a great guy. He's also a feminist, uh, which is hmm. crazy knowing about Louis B. Mayer. Yeah, uh, you're right. He really was the exact so opposite. So Carl Lemley hired a lot of women to be in predominantly male positions, uh, a lot of women, female directors, and he had the first ever female police chief, which was Laura Oakley. Um, and he also uh, got 300 immigrants from Germany to come and work at his movie studio. Wow. Um yeah, which is incredible. There's a lot more about Carl Lemley, uh, you know, fighting the good fight during uh, Hitler's reign. But, you know, that's another story. And he's a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. You he, know, he fought Hitler. Yeah. Okay. And I'd like to get into how he handled the Spanish flu and everything later because he he definitely, you know, took took control over the situation. Um, so anyways, Laura Oakley presents Carl Lemley with a golden key, uh, and he opens the gates to Universal Studios, and uh, there's going to be this three-day event where... So the plan for Universal Studios was to be was to, be to show people how movies were created. So he would invite guests... Through the early days of the the studio, he would invite guests to come and watch these silent films being made. They can be as loud as they want. They paid 25 cents, and then they also got a chicken dinner for the day. So these opening ceremonies were kind of a little preview of what they would see throughout uh, the rest of the year if they were to come back and be a guest to, you know, watch these movies being made. Hmm. So we had all these really cool... Uh, events kind of planned he had a shootout you know a cowboy shootout uh as well as a flight ex- exhibition is what he had um i also want to mention that universal studios had police a fire station which they still have today they had a zoo on the property a post office restaurants and 300 people actually lived full-time on the property uh so these were all functioning things but he also could use them as movie sets so he was pretty clever and they would also draw people to come you know and visit the site and pay their 25 cents uh uh... later on there would be an acting school on the property uh and elizabeth taylor was actually one of the students at the acting school so that's where she got her start was uh from this school on property and doing movies at universal so anyways so uh, day one goes great. Everything's cool uh, with the opening ceremonies. They're supposed to have an aviation exhibit on this first day, and they hire a gentleman named Frank Stites, uh, who had been uh, done some flight tricks in movies prior, and he's supposed to do this simulated flight of... Uh, so it's a simulated flight where one airplane... Or, sorry... Let me start that over. Uh, So he hires Frank Stites, uh, who has flown and done tricks in several movies prior to do a 
flight show for uh, the people who are watching on this day. And it's supposed to be on day one, but uh, Frank Stites had just found out that his friend uh, Lincoln, I have the name here, uh, Lincoln Beachy had died doing a flight trick uh, a few days earlier. So he was like kind of already apprehensive of uh, going up in the air and First day, he kind of tells them, no, I'm not going to do it. There's a lot of wind and they can't get the airplane to lift. So that's okay. They plan on it being part of the day two performance. So the trick was supposed to be that uh, his airplane was going to fly over a dummy airplane. So a fake airplane was going to fly on a string from one mountain to another mountain and Frank Stites plane was going to fly over it and drop a package in onto that airplane and then the airplane the dummy airplane would explode so it looked like he was dropping a bomb or dynamite into this airplane which the airplane was already fit with the explosives which I hate to interrupt Sounds amazing. This sounds like the yeah, greatest it, opening. Yeah, ever. it sounds really cool. <laughs> like, like what the fuck? Like they would never pull something like this off nowadays. Like, I mean, obviously because it's horribly dangerous. But let's get it more into that. <laughs> like, I was thinking exploding planes, or we could just get balloons. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, holy shit, man! How how ambitious. So Frank Stites goes up in the air. He flies over the dummy airplane. He drops the load onto the dummy airplane and the explosion goes off. But he, he, he does it. Oh, crazy. But yeah. he's too close to the dummy airplane and the explosion causes his plane to lose control. Now, they don't know if he was thrown out of the airplane or he purposely ejected himself from the airplane, but he fell 200 feet to the ground and was found about 50 feet away from his airplane. Uh, and he died on impact. Uh, now, according to folklore around the back lot and how we tell this story, we, we say that his spine went up into his brain, killing him instantly. Uh, um, I'm not really sure if that's actually what happened, but it sounds cool during Halloween. It does. Um, <laughs> so... That's uh, how Frank Stites died on uh, during the opening day ceremonies back in, uh, it was uh, either May 15th, I've also seen it said as it was May 17th, uh, 1915. So they're not really sure, was it day one, was it day two? You know, official opening day of Universal Studios is uh, May 15th, 1915. So um, I first heard this story uh during halloween horror nights so along with being a uh tour guide for the backlot tour i also have done uh six seasons of halloween horror nights as a scare actor and my second year working as a scare actor i worked uh on an area called the terror tram which is part of the backlot area and um that's more like where the War of the Worlds yes. set is. And yeah. ironically, Frank Stites is said to have crashed around where the plane crash area is oh. of War of the Worlds. So they have the, the set from the 2015 War... 2015? 2005? No. 
2005. Yeah. War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. That set is all there with the crashed airplane. And they still have it there on the property. I could go into the whole story of the reason that it's still there. Basically, they wanted to save money and it looks cool. (laughs) Um, So they use that area during Halloween Horror Nights. Uh, It's an area called Terror Tram. So they'll hide actors around that area. Also, the Bates Motel is very close. And uh, guests get to walk around and get scared as these actors jump out of this jagged airplane at them. So it's uh, the day before Halloween, which is my birthday, and uh, we had just finished out for the night. So we closed the back lot area around 12 o'clock. So so we are all headed back down uh, the hill to get on these vans that are going to take us up to where we change our costumes and everything. When you're checking out your costume, they give you an, uh, they give, you have to turn in your ID card to get the costume because they don't want anybody stealing, you know, props or costumes or anything like that. So in order to get your California state ID or driver's license back, you have to turn in your costume. Well, I made it all the way down the hill to the van and realized I had left my costume sweater up in my area. And I was one of the last people to leave. So I knew I had to run back and grab that sweater or I was going to miss the van and pretty much be on the back lot for the rest of the night. So as I'm walking back up the hill, uh, all of the lights start to go out on the set. And I hear like the transformers going off like, and the lights are going out. So then I hear something that to me sounds like peacocks or coyotes or like some sort of like yipping, howling sort of thing, you know? Uh, Uh And I don't think anything of it. I get my sweater, I get down the hill. Luckily, I'm able to get on that van and get out of there. So the next day is Halloween, and uh, John Murdy is the director, or the creative director of Halloween Horror Nights, and um, he's a really cool guy. And he wanted to do something special for the terror tram that year. So he comes out, he's got a top hat on, he's got his cane and a cape, and he comes and he tells us the story of Frank Stites that crashed right there where we're, you know, doing our performance, you know, for the night. And he tells me something that was definitely eerie, which is that Frank Stites, when he was falling from the airplane, rumor has it that he was laughing the whole way down because he knew something was gonna happen because he had a bad feeling about going up in the air with his friend passing away. So around the back lot, he's called the giggling ghost. And hearing that story and knowing that I had heard that yipping or whatever sound prior was just so eerie, uh, thank God, you know, I think that year Halloween might've been the last night And I was not (laughs) let back there to be alone, you know, any, any other time. But yeah, that is the story of Frank Stites, the giggling ghost. That's creepy. Giggling ghost. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like one of those situations where like, thank thank you for telling me that story of the night after I was in the dark by myself. So I haven't had too many 
personal paranormal experiences. So, you know, that one is a little questionable. You know, was it, you know, was it a coyote? I don't know if there are coyotes on the back lot. We definitely have I wild mean, definitely animals in out that there. Area, there's wild uh, animals. Oh, yeah. You know, in, encountering a coyote also would be pretty scary, but, you know. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that one definitely is, a, is an eerie one, and glad I was able to share it with you guys. So. No, that's nice. my story. Yeah, that's definitely being stuck on a back lot when everyone's turning off the power and then you hear creepy noises is, you know. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. It's definitely that's... freaky, especially like you said, around Halloween and you're there at a haunted house. It's... Yeah. And this is my second year ever working there. So now I'm a little more familiar with the back lot. Now, if I was like left back there on my own, I could find my way back to, you know, the front of the gate, you know and get back but at the time like i would have had no clue so i was indeed like in tears panicking that i was going to be left alone out there <laughs> yeah sure. i mean even if you do know where you're going it's just such a big space like yeah once, once it's dark it's it's weird it is know? very it's very weird and all these facades of houses not actual houses that's like very twilight zoney yeah so <laughs> anyways that's a nice creepy, story. I creepy. hope that I never had uh, any experiences like that at Horror Nights. Um, yeah, but you've experienced weird. ghosts, uh, on, like a Dark at Harbor Universal. and stuff. Like, but well, but actually, what about when you worked oh, at Back to the right, Future? That's right. When I worked, uh, I don't know if I ever told you this, Jameson, but I worked. Uh, I was a ride op for, for uh, the Back to the Future ride, um, and it was before it was the Simpsons ride. Before it was the Simpsons ride, yeah. Um, oh, so what would you do? Like you would you would ride the characters out there or something? Um, no, you. Because I was, remember that ride. Yeah, the ride was like it was like a you know the go motion ride or whatever. But I basically right. my job was you know basically bringing people into the waiting room and then being the guy on the microphone like. Oh, got it. Okay. You know, kind of. I know what you're talking about when you brought them into that little waiting room. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah, and doing the little got safety it. spiel and all that bullshit. Um, got it. But yeah, when I when I first started working there. Um, you know, my, there was always like this tales of like, you know, it being haunted and all this other stuff. And, um, a lot of people would complain about the third level specifically. And it was rumored, um, cause I never actually saw the video, but my supervisor said that he saw the video of this, uh, woman that had an aneurysm basically on the ride. And, oh. and you're told, like we're told when we, you know, close the door and lock you in and everything, we're told, you know, if you have a problem, if you're, you know, if you have a problem with the ride, you're on camera right now. So raise your hand, make it obvious, you know, that something's wrong. We'll immediately stop the ride. That's fine. But you have a brain aneurysm, like, you know, this, this girl, this girl was dead and just flopping back and forth, you know, and they oh. saw that on the video later on, you know, and then, it, then it became like a different, you know, there was the rule of, you know, say something, but then also like, it was very, very strictly, you know, under watch after that. But that, you know, that was part of like a kind of like a safety spiel at one point, you know, or maybe it was a ghost story. Who knows? That was so long ago. But anyway, so like a lot of people complained about uh, hearing like voices, but mostly like the lights uh, going on and off in the third floor. But um, I had never really experienced anything. But when we close out the night, uh, if you don't know the all of the cars for Back to the Future ride, which is now the Simpsons ride, which is exactly the same. All, there's like 25, maybe 30 cars um, or, you know, seating areas that are all facing the exact same screen. 
So right. it's just a bunch of cars doing the exact same motion, you know, but you're in separate rooms or whatever. Um, so when we had to go clean out the cars at the end of the night, you know, throw up or whatever the hell it was in there, um, <laughs> you know, it was usually one person per floor. You just went to each car and then each room, you know, but it's almost pitch black, you know, it's like there's very little lighting in there. And they have these, about, yeah, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And so they have the in the you know it's the DeLorean doors, so they pop up on the side, you know, to open up. But the way they're designed is that if there's an emergency, uh, they just unlock and it immediately pops open, you know. So there's no, it basically would take four hundred pounds of force, is what we we're told, to shut the door. Oh, wow. um, so you know it's because it's made for emergencies, you know, like if there's a fire or whatever, they want to make sure the door stays open. Um, but so I was cleaning one of the other cars on this uh, third floor and I hear this girl run and screaming, running by my room and I don't know what's going on, you know? And so I ask like, what happened to Jennifer or whatever the hell her name was, you know? And they're like, yeah, she just quit. She said that something threw her in the car and then shut the door. And yeah, and that one freaked me out, you know. But then after that, you know, I started noticing a lot of things. Like mostly the lighting thing was really weird. That was always on the third floor. You'd be chilling there, and the lights would go out, kind of like in sequence. Uh, uh, it was, yeah, it was definitely definitely really weird. But just also knowing the whole story of this yeah. girl too. Well, was I had freaky. a couple conversations with people who worked there, and one woman told me she told me one the house of horrors that used to be there that's no longer there was haunted and she said it was a demon that fed off of screams but <laughs> it's friendly now because it gets satisfied which Through that's a, nights, so. yeah which that's a great way place to be is in a haunted house if you're a demon that li- lives off of fear um <laughs> you know it's like monsters inc that's, could have done it way better or it's, yeah I mean, like monsters, inc. <laughs> she also said that you would periodically see a girl standing on top of the Simpsons ride at the very, very top. Uh, And then right before, like maybe a couple months ago, I had a conversation with a employee at the Simpsons ride. And I was like, Hey, you know, you know, it's haunted here. And she just like looked at me and I was like, yeah, one of the rooms here is haunted. And she goes, it's room nine. Uh... (laughs) And I was like, yeah, probably. She's like, no, that's the one we have all the problems with. It's room nine. That's crazy. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's the number, but that's, you know. I can't even remember yeah. what the numbers were. You worked there, Jameson. Any creepy stories? Yeah, I can't remember. That was back in its like first I years, right? Or saw. Um, I, didn't, I didn't get any of those cool stories. Unfortunately, I wish I did. But I have nothing cool to add to this, uh, <laughs> to, this to this at all. I mean, unless you count the guy that tried to molest me in the ice room, I don't think that there was anything scary that happened to me. Oh man, um, we'll count. We'll count that. We'll just, just we'll kidding. just say he was a ghost. That's my uncle. It wasn't the, some guy. It was just, just my uncle. It's okay. Oh my god. <laughs> Ooh, scary. Ooh. <laughs> Oh, man. But no, um, I, I I did work there for two seasons and uh, had a great time. But I never heard any kind of like you know this place is haunted or this and that. I you know I did the Back to the Future ride a bunch of times. It was one of my favorites, um, and I don't recall anything weird happening. Um, I, I'm not really like like you guys. I'm not very 
I, I guess I'm just, I, I'm not as open as I should be to that mm-hmm. stuff. And I, and I find that, you know, as much as I, uh, wish that stuff would happen to me, nothing really does. And, uh, you know, I also think to myself, yeah, be careful what you wish for, dude, because uh, you that's might get That's super it, true, you know? yeah. so, That's super true. I mean, I count know. myself as pretty lucky because I've seen most of my ghost stories and, like, encounters are involving it pretty much happening to someone else, but me witnessing the effect on that person. Huh. Um, so I'm, like, pre- I mean, I have a pretty scary one about the Queen Mary. I'll tell when we get to that episode maybe next season. Mm. Uh, and I'm just so glad that like that didn't happen to me because <laughs> I probably would, I don't know how I would cope with life after that. I don't know. I'll get to it. Yeah. Stay tuned yeah. guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So Pat, what do you got for us? Um, so I'm going to talk to you guys about a brilliant inventor, aviator, and filmmaker, of course, uh, Howard Hughes. Ooh. You guys are familiar, yes? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so you watch the, the you watch the Aviator. I get it, yeah. Um, but no, <laughs> honestly, like the Aviator has definitely sparked a lot of interest in Howard Hughes. Martin yeah. Scorsese did a great job. That's you know? a good movie, he's, yeah. He's, he's, yeah, it's a good movie. He's he was a good person, you know. At least in the beginning, he he started out as a good person. He just didn't treat himself. Right, you know Martin I mean? Scorsese or <laughs> that's Lars Martin Scorsese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Mary Martin Scorsese. I mean, you, if you haven't seen the one about the Teamsters, man, that was that was rich. Wait, um, is there a movie about the Teamsters? Yeah, The Irishman. Right? Isn't isn't that yeah. what it's called? The Irishman. Oh, I want to do a, an episode about. Uh, it's about um, Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, and that's the what Teamsters. it's about. Yeah, it's about Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. Um. Well, not just about that, but yeah, it's a. Uh, you get to see Robert De Niro beat someone up as a 65-year-old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> cool. I was joking, yeah. It was, it's still a good movie, but yeah, some of it was yeah, like Now really I want to see that movie. I yeah. had no interest before, but That's funny, I didn't yeah. know. Now that he's beating someone up. Um, but yeah, Howard Hughes. He was, yeah, um, you guys definitely heard of him. Um, he actually started out kind of... A rich guy too, um, because his dad became rich for inventing a revolutionary drill bit, um, specifically for drilling, uh, drilling for oil and stuff like that too. But it was that if you've seen the drill, it's like a huge drill bit, but it has like three different spherical knobs at the top, and they constantly rotate. Um, so this is a drill bit they still use today, uh, which is pretty crazy. Um, his first. Um, flight on a plane was actually at age 15 so he was definitely all about planes he felt really comfortable on planes um he was a uh, germaphobic that a lot of people know that but that started out at a very young age um his mom was germaphobic like super super germaphobic so bathing times with for her son were like hours long mm. um so it's like the same with Joan Crawford when she like talks about if you've ever seen Mommy Dearest. Yeah, which, right. Yeah, which is a great film. Fight me. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, she talks about that too. But it's uh, uh, listening to uh the podcast today of Root of Evil about the Black Dahlia. It's called a uh, traumatic reenactment when you have a trauma and then you kind of mimic 
that same thing. Like, even though you know it's wrong, you know, like, you end up recreating that trauma later on in your life. And it's mm. it's a form of taking control over it, but it also kind of consumes you at the same time. Wow. No, no, Anyways, no, no, yeah. that makes sense. What, yeah. what era is this? Like, what year is this? I mean, yes, yeah, so he's... Like, we're, we'll say he's, like, 10 right now. So, yeah, 1920, you know? Okay. Yeah, around there. So okay. I didn't, I didn't okay. date this right off the bat. Um, but, um, so, yeah, like I said, his mom was a super germaphobe, constantly, constantly cleaning him. He would go through these cleaning sessions, and he would go and, like, eat, and then she'd go back to cleaning him like crazy. Um, so he was a very, very shy introvert type growing up. Um, mm-hmm. Eventually, he, because of his... You know, introverts, you know, I don't know. It's kind of a common thing, you know. They're very, very, very intelligent, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he created uh, Hughes Tool Company uh, when he was uh, just 19. Um, he actually injured his head um, several times. He actually cracked his skull three times. Um, and wow. Those were just the times that were recorded. Doing his, what? Uh, well, there's. I'll, we'll start with the first one. Um <laughs> Um, so, Coming in at number one. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so he was, um, when he started doing, uh, he started getting into films, um, actually his first film, Hell's Angels, and it was mostly because it was all about airplanes. Dude just loved airplanes, you know, mm-hmm. and, but he also had tons of money from Hughes Tool Companies, you know, so he wanted to invest that into filming. Um on Hell's Angels, there was tons and tons of crazy uh, flight scenes. Um, if you actually get to watch the movie, which I finally did, it's, it's pretty good, um, especially for its time. You know, um, the f- flight scenes are ridiculous. They're still really good, like today. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of them were so ridiculous that some of the pilots would refuse to do it. Um, one specifically uh, on Hell's Angels said there's no way... He- a plane could actually pull off this certain turn so howard hughes said fine i'll do it um and he literally jumped right in the cockpit took off and of course crashed because the pilot was right um <laughs> right yeah and so he actually injured uh, this was his first uh large head injury and he injured what's called his orbital frontal cortex and this is uh, a part of the brain that if it's deprived of oxygen for long enough, which when he cracked his skull, it was, um, this basically, um, it's, a, it's a part of the brain that senses uh, error detection. Um, so if there were, you know, so like if, if you, when you do, you know, when you, uh, let's say, wash your hands, you know, you wash your hands and then, you know, you didn't dry them, but you, you know, you immediately go, oh, I need to dry them, you know. He doesn't have that anymore. So now he starts constantly checking himself. He's yeah. constantly checking his work and rechecking it, which is also a symptom of OCD. Um, so... In uh, 1932, he creates Hughes Aircraft Company, and this is um, after Hell's Angels. He he actually Hell's Angels was a it was a, it was a success. Um, I think uh, they actually said that he they uh, lined the street. Um, there was a sorry. Um, it was the most expensive movie ever made in Hollywood at that time. 
but it very it very much was a success in the sense that you know the style of film that was created the way he was actually be able to pull this stuff off and it, it was actually reported that there was 500,000 people that lined Hollywood Boulevard as they did this premiere. Wow. Um, wow. But that's, I mean, that's a shit ton of people for sure. Half a million. Um, Jesus. But this was, that's why you, you could tell it was definitely the most like expensive movie in Hollywood. And this kind of became the kind of norm for Hollywood films too, was to have this exaggerated um, excitement for it yeah. you know the film hadn't even been seen yet. you know what i mean yeah exactly the film hadn't even been seen but because he was such a stickler with the filming and people thought oh wow he's doing all these reshoots and reshoots and he's putting more money into it and they went way the fuck over budget you know and but the reason he wasn't doing was doing this was because he was mentally ill kind of you know yeah. because he's he, a perfectionist. he was a perfectionist you know and that's not something you want as a filmmaker uh, one of the documentaries I was watching, um, which is on uh, the Biography channel, a really, really good documentary, but they were talking about some of the film crew was like, what the fuck, you know, like, yeah, we're being paid, but I don't want to work on this movie for three years, you know what I mean? Like, it was, mm -hmm. it was ridiculous. Can we um, say fuck on the podcast? Oh, yeah, it's all explicit, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, fuck. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, fuck. Mine could have been like 10 minutes longer. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Could have Gordon Ramsay this up. <laughs> so he like, so he, like uh, he creates Hughes Aircraft Company because he's really not just about films. He just really loves airplanes. And that's, that's very, uh, that's a constant theme for sure. Not just in the podcast, but in, in my story specifically. Um, so. He, after he creates this aircraft company, like months later, he completely disappears. And that's another thing, like cracking his skull, he does a lot of times is disappear. Um, he, the, he is actually, he disappears for like four or five months. And then he's discovered as a baggage handler for American Airlines. He's just working what? as a baggage handler. Um, and so a lot of people thought like, um, he, like he's, he's discovered as a baggage handler, but it's kind of like a, no, that's not. It's not Howard Hughes, but then he's later promoted to co-pilot. So then they're like, wait, what the, right, what the hell? You know, like no baggage handler just gets promoted to co-pilot. You know what I mean? Like, obviously Howard like you Hughes could do whatever he wants, but you know you what know? I mean? Like yeah. that, that would be weird if you were like, you know what? You throw bags really well into that plane. How about getting behind the wheel? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that doesn't that seem random? Like they probably were like, oh wow, you have tons of flight experience. Yeah. Well, let's put you behind a fucking plane. Um, so a lot of people were like, what the hell? Like, are you mentally, you know, fucked right now? Which maybe he kind of was, but a lot of people thought he was just doing research to find out the inner workings of an airline because months later he bought TWA and that was a, uh, you know, little regional, uh, airline at the time. And after he took it over, he turned it into this, um, thriving airline you it's know it was now it's, i mean yeah. it's huge now but i mean especially back then like he that became the top airline um just because he i mean he's an amazing inventor like some of the stuff he created is amazing but you know he he also owned it and could invest as much money as he wanted but yeah a lot of people thought it was either that doing research and you know you know because of him buying twa later but or a lot of people think like it was just Weird Howard wanted to go and work and do something different. He was bored. I mean, I've had that urge so many times. Like I said uh, earlier when I was talking about my nightmare about working at Disneyland. Uh, ironically, 
I've always been like, I would love to just have like a write up job at Disneyland or like do some sort of like low expectation job where I can just clock in, I can do my job and then I can leave. And it doesn't have to be this whole entertaining people. Sometimes you just want to be like, you know what? I just want like a normal people job for like two seconds. No, and, that's true. And get out of the limelight. Yeah, because he was definitely in the limelight at like, that time. Us yeah. movie stars have it rough, you it's know? true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after being like busted or whatever, uh, he came back to California to make airplanes because that's what he really wanted to do. Yeah. Um, but of course he crashed again. Um, this was in September 1935. He was testing the Silver Bullet. Um, this was one that he was really uh, keen on making perfect. The, this is when he was uh, starting to have, like, you know, his OCD was paying off. He was, it was like a very sleek uh, airplane, definitely uh, a fastest of its kind at the time. Um, but he, after he crashes, he actually gives an interview that he directs himself. He directs this interview. And this is right after the crash. So he's, you know, messed up his head yet again, you know. He's and, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And so let's he's see. like, yeah, he does that a few times. He, like, does the of interview and he he's does. like, oh, yeah. no, wait, no, 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 let's take it back. But during the interview, he starts displaying tics that people start to notice. Like, he starts pulling on his pant legs in, like, certain patterns. Like, he'll pull one, then the other, one, then the other, one, then the other, and then he'll keep doing his thing and it's like that's weird you know why yeah. why are you doing that but this is uh what ni 1935 so ocd doesn't exist they don't really quote. know a lot about mental yeah illness they, or how to treat it specifically either um so no one really does anything about that um he crashes a second time and this is in the 1943 sikorsky uh, S-43. Uh, it crash-landed in Lake Mead, Arizona, and one crew member actually dies in this crash. Um, and this is the supposedly the first time Howard uh, begins to feel guilt. And it, some people say it kind of brings him back to uh, a little bit of normal. You know, uh, because he kind of gets out of the public eye for a little while, you know. Maybe that that's what the impression is anyway. Um... But he continuously goes back to his compulsive washing. He's constantly cleaning his hands, rechecking his work. Uh, he became he becomes obsessed with symmetry uh, in everything. Every that's why you know maybe you've heard him uh, in his later years piling boxes of tissues and stuff like that. But they were like that's what he was just aligning things perfectly. Hmm. Um, but he was a perfectionist, you know, and that's really what it all came down to. And some people were like. Um, you know, he's just an eccentric, but you know, uh, the, yeah. the other half were like, no, this is a mental health issue, you know, especially his friends, um, or, you know, friend, very few friends, you know, cause you're, he's just constantly running like nine businesses at a time, you know, yeah. like he doesn't really have time for that. Um, so he starts working on, uh, for like, uh, does like high profile military contracts and this is during world war two. So the government's definitely willing to invest in him. They want to get the edge over the enemy. Um, so they invest, uh, they, he starts working on the Spruce Goose, um, and that was designed to actually fly super high um, and uh, didn't really ever do that. <laughs> Full <laughs> they, circle, they, got, they like, house 
they house the Wait, spruce are you goose. telling me that are you telling me that the spruce goose was invented to uh, help with the war effort like for bombing and stuff they they originally yeah. that was the idea but yeah. it was like a full really? it was like the first fully wooden well, the idea or... was to make it so light that they could go super, super high and carry tons of stuff, and yeah. they, they never. But I was saying, out. full circle back to the Queen Mary. The Spruce Goose was housed at the dome That's at the Queen right. Mary yeah. for many years. That's right. Um, where they filmed Batman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, nice. So he was also Wait. working. Sorry, what's up? Batman? What did you say about Batman? Oh, yeah, they, they the first Batman. Batman at the Dome, which is next to the Queen Mary. Now yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about the original Batman, like the Tim Burton one? Yeah, they created that's where Gotham. they built Gotham, was inside the Dome. Get out, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that dope? And that's where they housed the Spruce Goose. Currently, I think, uh, what is it, Carnival, Carnival Cruises Cruise Lines, is yeah. using it. It has yeah. been used a few times for their like Halloween and their Christmas stuff but i think now carnival cruise owns it but yeah like spruce goose is like it's like in another country now right or something like that <laughs> goose is in oregon it's apparently. in oregon oh my goodness uh, in mcminnville <laughs> maybe <clears throat> everybody knew that uh right <laughs> so yeah he works on spruce goose and he definitely works on the xf11 which is a spy plane um that one was uh the priority for sure uh, especially during the war um both projects were way over budget way overdue and it had to do with him being the perfectionist but it also had to do with him having to be the test pilot that was actually how he started i i've actually forgot to mention that when he started the reason he um started getting into aviation was testing uh planes and stuff like that um so <clears throat> Because he had to be the test pilot, you know, they were always behind schedule and, you know, him being a perfectionist. So he crashes again. And this is in that XF-11 spy plane. He's soaring high above uh, the Los Angeles basin. Um, and then the one of the propellers gives out. And this is where he crashes into Beverly Hills. Uh, and this is in that spy plane. And he's hospitalized with several neck fractures. Um, most people thought he wasn't going to make it. Uh, several doctors told him that to his face, like, you're not going to make it. And he's like, well, let's, well, let's just see type of, you know, he's like, you didn't ever take it seriously, I guess. Um, but it, the neck fractures that he received gave him serious, serious pain. And he developed a drug problem, of course, um, because of that. This is um, the fourth crash he's been in. This is the third crash. Uh, da, 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 da. Yes. One, two. No, you're right. This is the fourth crash. There was no uh, head injuries, I guess. No skull fractures. Oh. On this one. But neck fractures, <laughs> like a mother. Right, yeah. Um, so, from the 1940s to the 50s, Hughes Tool Company uh, decides to venture into uh, the film industry. And they obtain partial ownership of RKO. Um, RKO companies... Uh, Includes RKO Pictures, RKO Studios, and a chain of movie theaters known as RKO Theaters. And, of course, the uh, network of radio stations that RKO originally was mm-hmm. for, RKO Radio Network. So um, you said that he bought this or he started this company? Um, how, like, the Hughes Tool Company obtained uh, this company, basically. RKO Pictures. So, okay, so it was already established. He just purchased that. Mm-hmm. And it was a partial ownership as well. Uh, oh, okay. 
<clears throat> that yeah the tool company wasn't uh, completely owner, uh, owning it um so it was a struggling hollywood studio at the time he uh they acquired 929,000 shares is basically how they acquired the studio um um unfortunately it did not do good it was not a good idea um or not i mean howard hughes was just not really serious about it within weeks of the studio of them acquiring the studio hughes fired 700 people uh production dwindled down to just nine pictures uh, during the first year and before then i guess rko had averaged around 30 per year so oh, yeah that's definitely that's, a big drop yeah. off um <clears throat> well that's like have you ever worked for rich people who have money a lot of money and this kind of like buy something as the new shiny toy they don't really appreciate it yeah. like, i've definitely seen that happen a few times where I feel like that's consistent in Hollywood. Yeah, too. that's a big yeah. thing in Hollywood. Like, yeah. oh, I'm, we're gonna make this, and I'm gonna hire all of these people, and you know they don't really respect the process. But also, like Howard Hughes obviously was not working with you know an entire full set, you right. know, yeah. at the time. Yeah. <laughs> um. So production shut down for six months, uh, during which time investigations were conducted of some of the employees who remained at RKO. Um, and this was because of their political associations or affiliations. Uh, Is this during the McCarthy communism scare? Um, it doesn't, I guess, yeah, I guess that would be around the same time, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I got cat problems. Uh, PJ hates Howard Hughes. She's been been real upset this whole story. Um, But yeah, apparently, yeah, uh, there was a lot of issues with uh, political affiliations. This was especially true of the women under contract to RKO at the time. If Howard Hughes felt that his stars did not properly represent the political views of his liking, or if a film's anti-communist politics were not sufficiently clear, he would pull the plug. Uh, in 1952, an abortive sale to Chicago-based group connected to the mafia with no experience in the industry disrupted studio operations at RKO even further. Um, in 1953, Howard Hughes became involved with a big lawsuit, uh, uh, United States versus Paramount Pictures. Uh, and this, was, as a result of the hearings, the shaky status of RKO became really obvious. A steady stream of lawsuits from RKO's minority shareholders had grown to become extremely annoying to Hughes. They accused him of financial misconduct, corporate mismanagement. Um, They were basically just trying to take him down. Uh, Since Hughes wanted to focus primarily on his aircraft manufacturing and TWA, um, Hughes offered to buy out all the other stockholders in order to dispense with their distractions. Um, This was, yeah... Howard was just kind of over fighting it, I guess. Um, dun, dun, dun. I go back to like him not with like the women not uh, being up to his political standard. I also heard a rumor that he would make these women go to his doctor to get checked out to make sure that they didn't have any sort of diseases before they could work in his films, you know. And he also had, like, several of them as his, like, side piece girlfriends. Um, I mean, it's Hollywood. 
Like, women yeah. aren't basically property, so. <sighs> Speaking of side piece girlfriends, um, this is the next part oh, of this Oh, sorry if I, if I no, jumped on that no, too you're soon. Good. Um, so... <laughs> This uh, this is actually yeah he he he's, he eventually sells uh, RKO he can't really handle it to a uh, was it gen the General Tire and Rubber Company uh, for twenty five million um, yeah. he apparently made a huge profit too uh, which is kind of weird he made a ten million dollar profit for the sale of theaters um, but then he um, is kind of a lot of friends and stuff are noticing that his addictions are becoming a lot harder or not harder harder to deal with i guess because he's being obvious about it yeah. and apparently he was addicted to codeine valium and or valium and eprin um and this was still from the severe pain that he was experiencing from the neck fractures uh apparently the after um later on when you know they did the autopsy and analyzed him like he was definitely in severe pain for a long period of his life so that means he was probably on drugs for a long long period of his life it's like dr house Kind of, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Just like Dr. House. He would go and yell at people and then be right. Oh, I'm sure he did, actually. <laughs> and be right, that's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> and be right in the end, yes. Um. So this didn't stop, like like I said, like the, a lot of people noticed this stuff, but some people didn't, you know? And the public wasn't exactly wise of that, but it's, but it's because he had control of it. He was still operating, like, all of these companies and dealing with his pain by taking these medications, you know, which were prescribed to him uh, by doctors, you know? So... You know, also he's Howard Hughes, so you know who knows what actually happened behind the scenes. But we'll get into that even a little bit later. Um, but so he's still, you know, doing his thing, and he is starting to get into his dating of Hollywood starlets and stuff like that. He introduced uh, Gene Harlow and Hell's Angels, um, but he apparently, I mean, he had a giant list of uh, like of uh, uh, women he dated. Catherine Hepburn. Uh, Catherine Hepburn. Um, God, I, I can't believe I didn't put that list on here. I'm, I'm that guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he apparently, yeah, he had tons of different girlfriends, and they were kind of all very secretive because he didn't want the public eye in them. But it was most also because he didn't want other girls that he was dating to know that he was, you know, dating, dating multiple dating around, girls. Dating multiple yeah. girls. I heard also like he would like house them. Like he would be like, "You're gonna come to my doctor. You're gonna get checked out." Then I'm gonna put you up in a house, and then you are shut away there. No, that's you know? true. Yeah, I he, feel like that's like that still a, a thing, lot. though, in he Hollywood. Did that for a lot of, uh, yeah. yeah, several actresses, um, and most of the time it was because he just wanted control. It wasn't. Uh, it was never a sexual thing, really. He would put um, when he, wherever he stayed, he would put up several different women, you know, and several different people, you know, staff, uh, but mostly, yeah, women that were his girlfriends you know because he had a wife at the time um which is yeah really interesting um in april 1959 the public wolf which is like i don't know nowadays national Enquirer, i guess you know it's their, their tmz i guess this is their magazine uh public wolf number one and he actually gets busted with seven different girlfriends they do a layout of all the different girls that are dating Howard Hughes and they have like pictures and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and he's pissed. He's like, shit, you know, the word is out. So he hires an army of men and they go to every store and buy all of the magazines. They actually oh they successfully bought like almost all of the magazines. Oh but God. I mean, if the pictures still exist, that means they didn't get all of them. Yeah. Um, 
a lot of people also believe that um um his um going going back to his um issues with his ocd and stuff like that so it's discovered that he actually got syphilis in the 30s um and this is sent out apparently somehow this interview gets out of a friend of his that was mm-hmm. uh friends with him back then and he's been treating it with what's known as the magic bullet which is a mixture of mercury and arsenic oh jesus oh, christ <laughs> um, yeah so a lot of people think that that's why he had mercury poisoning yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's maybe that's what it was um but also say some say he never had this disease because they would have found some of that in his brain like they would have found syphilis the disease Uh. in his brain during the autopsy which they never did um so yeah that's definitely speculation um or maybe the autopsy is not accurate or something you know i don't know who knows look at me like i know (laughs) (laughs) um what are you looking at me for (laughs) so (laughs) He, um, where was I? Yeah, so he ends up becoming like a serious recluse. He holds up in the Pantages Theater, which is huh. in Hollywood that used to be on our tour. I miss, I miss doing that spot. Yeah. On our tour. Well, he owned it, right? Um, well, he owned RKO Pictures, which technically, I guess, owned that owned property Pantages. at the time. Yeah. Um, so he would hold up in the Pantages on the second floor holding private screenings and stuff like that for for himself um he the fbi labels him as paranoic they've been kind of following him i guess and uh, <laughs> gee wouldn't that make you paranoid right yeah well it's like they right yeah exactly yeah but it's like they also uh, apparently they had to tail him they had to trace his phone calls because he's working with the military on all these uh private uh, defense contracts and a lot of people don't know that he was developing a lot of uh communication technology too back then mm-hmm. um he was a spy like he was doing spy technology you know not just in the planes um so but you know the fbi had to kind of tail him but they were saying that a lot of his stuff was just yeah really paranoid and they even said that he was capable of murder and a lot of people were talking about having him committed and he found out about that so he decided to marry gene peters and some people say that he did that to get out of being committed who's gene peters gene peters was an actress at the time um she wasn't like huge you know i guess um but a lot of people say that she he married her to get out of it and it's even she even said that he said that if we get married would you do that to me you know would you commit me yeah. you know and she said no i would never do that so he's like okay well, so let's get married you, you're the one <laughs> so they married in secret in nevada uh, a random local motel and everyone oh. dressed as duck hunters and they wore big like <laughs> elmer fudd caps and plaid shirts and stuff cool uh, right <laughs> um supposedly gene peters wasn't too excited about it you uh. know I wonder why. Right, yeah, right, yeah, being dressed as a duck hunter. Um, but, um, yeah, the procession went on, you know, and it was, of course, about found out about later. Um, and then he went in, this is pretty much when he takes the turn for the worse. Um, in December 1957, he purchases Lasek's studio, and for four months, 
he stays there having his private screenings and he never leave uh he never leaves sorry he eats nothing but is reported to eat nothing but chocolate bars and milk and he is literally working from the phone at the time um he's not talking to anybody except for the business uh discussions um He's also only writing instructions to people. He refused to talk to anybody unless it was on the phone to his business, you know, constituents, I guess. And so he would write long instructions and then hand them to his aides and then they were supposed to carry out whatever he said. Um, he also started having stacked tissues everywhere, like I said before, and then he created the Kleenex Directive, um, which is 8 to 10 thickness of Kleenex to open any doorknob. Uh, apparently that was just one of the items they talked about on the Kleenex. Eight to ten Kleenex to open the door? That's the eight to ten Kleenex of thickness, yes. That's Mm. what he said. Whoa! Yeah. I remember watching that in the Aviator 2 and being like, oh, maybe that's exaggerated. I feel like he didn't do enough. That's, (laughs) you know, nine of those? That's crazy. Um, so his personal hygiene is super deteriorating at this time. And I always thought this was weird because he's still obsessed with avoiding germs. Um, mm-hmm. but he's not taking care of himself at all. So after five months or sorry, four months, he finally emerges having not shaved or showered at all. And then he moves into the Beverly Hills hotel um, <laughs> and he stays Which there. I'm sure they were for, thrilled about. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so he stays there for like four or five months, um, also housing his staff and everybody else, his friends. Um, the FBI is still watching him, you know, because of his national defense business. Pains keep getting worse that he's experiencing. So he starts hiring doctors uh, to uh, give them prescriptions, making it out in other people's names um, so he can have more of the drugs. Um, he eventually sells TWA and becomes a billionaire immediately. Um, and he wants to move on so he goes to las vegas and he basically builds what is modern day las vegas now um he goes to the first hotel he goes to um he's staying there for two nights and the guy says uh or he wants to stay an extra night and the guy's like well we'll have to move you to a different you know side of the hotel because someone else is taking this room he's like okay i'm gonna buy this hotel then yeah and he buys the hotel um what hotel is that um it, i forgot to write that down i did not write that down i should have written that down oh okay not the sahara uh, that's right a no um uh, i mean yeah this would have been before Tropicana. this would have been way before any of those yeah yeah well it's still 1960 i mean right is it in the 60s now 50 58 i think yeah but that's oh, okay. that, that's still before yeah tropicana didn't that was mid 60s maybe oh, okay um so he buys the hotel and he start, he's enjoying it, but he's starting to do a lot of weird stuff again, including sending employees to pick up the payphone at random places. Um, and they would he would sometimes just say, like, you need to pick up the phone and, you know, here. And they would wait there for like six hours to 12 hours. And sometimes the phone call would never happen. But some most of the time it did, and apparently a lot of people believed it was Howard Hughes trying to like test your trust level or no. or like how far you would go for him, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, which I guess makes sense. Uh, PJ didn't enjoy that. Um, he buys a TV station in Vegas, 
and this is for the sole function so that he could call them when he was in the room so he could watch movies he wanted to watch he would just call them and be like play this and they would have to play it because he mm-hmm. owns it um he eventually divorces from gene peters surprisingly uh due to howard being a crazy sociopath um he then vanishes another time he uh disappears uh from las vegas on thanksgiving night three weeks later he is found at the bahamas announcing that he fired uh mayhew i think it's peter mayhew i think is what his name was um he was basically uh a partner at the time um running a lot of the business for sure uh, and then he handed over his empire to a group of Mormon aides, basically the Mormon mafia. Yeah. And that's kind of, yeah, a lot of Vegas. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah. Now. Um, and the Mormon mafia is supposedly controlling uh, Howard's communication, and they're using his dependency on drugs to do that, saying... Um, you know, like if you don't sign away this real estate, you know, we won't give you your morphine or whatever. Or uh. um, in 1972, uh, an unauthorized bio written by a man named Irving, uh, and he was only Irving at this time. Um, and he was saying it was an unauthorized biography of Howard Hughes because in a lot of people think he did this because he knew Howard Hughes doesn't talk and he doesn't do interviews anymore. So he's not going to deny it. You know, it's 1972. I'll get away with it. And Hughes decided to give one last interview. This is the last interview he would ever give. And this was on TV and, and radio at the time, you know, and he's very, he seems kind of out of it, you know, but he also seems kind of like, you know, like, well, if, I wish I was still in the movie business because this is a story right here, you know, like kind of being jovial about it, you know, which is kind of interesting. Um, So he's kind of definitely not feeling himself. So doing the one thing he loved, he decides to go flying. Uh, This time he decides to fly around London and he is in his own airplane completely naked. I don't know why, um, but there's like supposedly this whole meta, you know, moment of like, I'm myself again, you know, I can, you know, be, be a better person, but he was already like on the decline, you know, he was already not, not doing well with all this drug addictions and stuff like that. Uh, he eventually breaks his hip too, doesn't walk ever again. Um, and then he dies on a flight from Acapulco to Houston. And a lot of people thought that that was kind of cool because he was on a flight when he died. You know, he was in the air, you know, mm. and that was what something that mm-hmm. he really loved to do. Um, so that was a good thing, you know, to think of. Um, after they performed the autopsy, they revealed several broken needles in his arms. Um, so there was this whole theory that the doctors were severely mistreating him. Mm. Uh, it wasn't just the Mormon mafia or whatever. Okay. And they find needles in his body, like broken off needles. Broken needles. These are probably, you know, when he was taking all of these drugs. Um, mm. These were uh, intramuscular injections. Uh, so he was shooting himself up and sometimes passing out and breaking a needle off in mm-hmm. himself or, or something else. Or it was a doctor, wow. you know, malfunction or they just didn't care about him and they, you know, didn't care that it was still inside him. But yeah, I guess they found uh, several broken needles. And there was tons of obvious miscare, but it was also like 
he didn't treat himself right so it's kind of hard mm. to say one way or the other so but yeah there's this big theory of like did the doctors kill him you know but um it was also reported this i thought was interesting that he was the longest living severe pain patient um they label severe pain on a certain scale and with those neck fractures and all this cranial uh uh, the skull fractures to uh, the damage to his orbital frontal cortex like he was definitely in severe pain mm -hmm. but because he managed it with the drugs and his job and all this other stuff or his jobs um he just kind of pushed past it you know but also when you have like billions of dollars and people to you know push it off on you know i guess i guess that helps but i thought that was interesting the longest living severe pain patient um the so this all kind of coincides. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about the uh, Pantages Theater uh, specifically because that's uh, apparently Howard is still visiting. Uh, the Pantages is in Hollywood. Uh, if you don't know it, uh, if you've never been to Hollywood, it's a, a very gorgeous theater. It's an art deco uh, masterpiece is what it's called. Um, I don't know. It's everything's played there. Wicked. Uh, yeah. Book of Mormon. I, don't want, I was going to say Kinky Boots. Uh, no, Kinky Boots was there. It did, I, but I wanted to have like a... I hate, no offense to Kinky Boots. I've never seen it. It's part, I'm sure it's great. Well, but, but do you I, want me to list the things that I've seen there? Or? Um, what was the first thing? Hamilton. We saw, we saw Phantom of the Phantom Opera. Of the Opera. Anastasia. Yeah. I've seen... Lion jo King. Yeah, Lion King's been there. I've seen Joseph the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat with Sean Cassidy, which was really cool oh, as Joseph. Uh, I saw Hairspray there... Lots of stuff. They do everything there. I mean, we're, it's like the California Broadway. That's true. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's Hamilton a... was supposed to be here, but. It, oh, that's right. Because <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. <sighs> I got cast instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. It's a yeah, Art Deco masterpiece. It's a really beautiful theater. It was definitely the biggest at its uh, in, in, it is time. Actually, no. Nowadays in Hollywood, it's at what the Dolby Theater is probably bigger. Yeah. Uh, the Pantages was the lar what? The Pantages was probably the largest theater at the time. At the but time I'm saying that it nowadays, was built, it was it's probably the, the Dolby. Theater. I don't know what the largest theater. I'm. I don't know yeah. what that would be. Maybe the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. No. Just. Um. So yeah, of course, uh, like I said before, he, uh, Howard Hughes purchased uh, RKO, so he stayed in, at the Pantages for a few uh, weeks uh, or a few months. He would stay on the second floor offices. He was when he did his like screenings. He was there like day and night all the time. This wasn't the place where he, uh, uh, the studio where he did his four month binge. Mm -hmm. uh, which is something uh, that a lot of people get confused. A lot of people think that he was staying there. He did stay there for quite a long time, though, um, because, uh, yeah, he set up super plush offices on the second floor. And uh, after, you know, when even today, a lot of people say they still see Howard Hughes wandering in and out of these offices, which aren't offices anymore, uh, or are not the executive offices that he had designed. Um, and so a lot of people say they see him walking around. They specifically hear his footsteps. Uh, a lot of people also complain of uh, the room being filled with cigarette smoke uh, and not just the smell of it. Sometimes they see it and they don't see a person. Um, and so, some people thought that was uh, strange uh, because 
Howard Hughes actually didn't smoke. He despised smoke. Um, so some people think it's maybe somebody messing with Howard. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, some like I said, they also see him. They see him as a tall, skinny, lanky dude in a plain suit. Um, and he'll walk around the corner and then go through a wall. Uh, and that actually used to be a doorway to his office. And some people have said they've seen him working in the office. Um, but the, they've, the, him walking through the wall apparently is seen quite a bit. There's also a female presence uh, that's still calling the theater home. Back in 1932, a female patron that was watching the show actually died in the mezzanine during the show. And after, of course, she passed, the whenever the auditorium's dark and quiet, sometimes they can hear the voice of a woman singing. And sometimes this is even during the day. Um, but it's, I, th I think it was rumored to have happened during a show. I think it was the original time I had heard about this. Sorry, this is just popping into my head now. Um, but yeah, the, the rumor is, or at least the theory that's been developed is that um, this might have also been an unfortunate young woman who was an aspiring singer um, who would, you know, didn't make it in one musical in the 30s and wanted to, you know, finally belt it out and get her name known. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, no, no one's ever really confirmed that. Um, but yeah, apparently it was picked up uh, on a monitor during a live performance and this was when none of the actors were on stage. So a lot of people think that that was uh, her last time uh, being being heard. Um, so yeah, that's the Pantages. Uh, Howard Hughes, I definitely wanted to focus on his story and kind of how he went through a lot of shit, man. He, he, yeah, he, you were talking about um, Hell's Angels, about how he filmed that. And mm -hmm. uh, you had mentioned Gene Harlow. Uh, being in that movie, and, and that was that was kind of her breakout film. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> Jean Harlow was actually her her real name actually was Harlene. Have you did you know that? Oh really? Harlene uh, Harlene Harlow Carpenter. Oh hmm. So feel like, like that she kept her middle name too. and, and uh, did Jean instead of Harlene. Hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That's a cool name. I, I can't help but think of Harley Quinn whenever I hear that name. But Harley, mm -hmm. yeah, right. I, I don't think that's her. I don't think that's her character's name, but that's just what I think of when I hear Harley. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she was actually born in Kansas City, Missouri, on March third, nineteen eleven. So, um, kind of right when movies were starting to, you know, get really big. You said um, Universal's opening year was what? Uh, nineteen fifteen. Okay, so just right before you know those mo those major movie studios are moving into Hollywood, um, and she, uh, you know, she she came up and uh, moved out to Hollywood and started getting into films and um, basically her getting her her bit part. Well, funny enough, I was I was looking and I saw that um, one of her first films was in a she was a uh, in a Laurel and Hardy film okay. and. She was hired by the director Hal Roach, which I believe you oh. used in an earlier story, correct? Yeah, in Girl Twenty Seven, Hal Roach. Uh, it was his ranch that everything went down at. There you go. Well, yeah. apparently he hired uh, Jean Harlow as a. Uh, she was labeled well. Uh, her character uh, 
was called the Swanky Blonde. <laughs> so she was a Swanky Blonde, uh, or you know, cast as a Swanky Blonde in a Laurel Hardy skit by Hal Roach. So a little, um, little name recognition there. Mm-hmm. Um, another name recognition, like you said, Howard Hughes, uh, starring in, in Hell's Angels, and uh, he had her um, locked down in contract. And made uh, quite a few movies with her, but Hell's Angels was her biggest and most popular. Mm-hmm. And um, he just kind of started losing interest in her and uh, just didn't really think that she was going to become who she became. And by that point, um, MGM was trying to uh, shop her. And so um, she she ended up signing with MGM uh, and becoming the, the uh, movie star that she you know, is now known to be. Um, so she, she actually ends up getting that on her 21st birthday, um, August 3rd, uh, on her 21st birthday, she actually gets the contract. Like she signs the contract with MGM. Um, she died very young. She, she was not old when she died. I think it was 26 when she died. So she, she, uh, you know, I mean, she signs this, this huge contract and not much longer after that, she's dead, you know? Mm-hmm. Jeez. Um, so that was yeah, it, 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 very young, very young. Uh, so she, let's see here, she gets this contract, um, and and actually in um, 1937, uh, she gets influenza. She goes to the um, White House to uh, do a, a charity thing that ends up becoming the March of Dimes, and uh, she contracts uh, influenza while she's there. And uh, she's sick, but she gets better. And then she goes to the dentist to get her wisdom teeth pulled, and she ends up getting sepsis uh. from from the from the wisdom teeth pulled mm. uh, a month later. Um, she also had scarlet fever when she was a kid, and all these complications kind of come in um, and, and start to affect her. And she starts to complain about having fatigue and nausea. Um, fluid retention, like she's she's getting really bloated, mm-hmm. um, abdominal pains. Uh, she's she, they they say that she looks like a really grayish color. She's not looking good at all. And um, by this point, this is about 1937. Uh, she's already filmed. She's already been in about three dozen movies, uh, which is a heck of a lot of movies to make in nine years. When you're only in Hollywood for nine years and you make 36 movies, I mean. Mm-hmm. That's that's crazy. It's a lot. Um, she she goes oh so she complains about these uh, problems. She's filming a movie called Saratoga at this point, and uh, they're 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 almost done filming, but there's still some scenes to be shot. But they're filming one scene, and she's just like, I, I can't I can't go on right now. I, I'm really in a severe amount of pain here. I think it was Clark Gable that she's with in this and she tells him and she's like, you got to get me out of here. I, I feel like, you know, I feel terrible. And uh, so he, he calls the director, the director, you know, calls the doctor. Uh, she's taken away back home and uh, the, the movie studio sent over some doctors and, you know, they're checking her out and the doctor is basically like, Oh, uh, you know, I think that um, you have an inflamed gallbladder and you're suffering from complications from the influenza. So he diagnoses her and uh, she's still getting sicker. And so they bring in a second opinion. And when the second doctor arrives, he immediately realizes that she's 
in the final stages of kidney failure. Jeez. All right, so she's she's been mis, misdiagnosed, and by this point, it's too late. And uh, basically, she she's basically in her house for about a week, and then she dies. Uh, I thought this is kind of crazy. Uh, Clark Gable went to visit her, and uh, he had said that she was a really good kisser when when they were filming movies. And uh, he went to you know he went to to visit her and make sure she was doing okay. And he went to kiss her, and he said that he. Smelled, he could smell urine on her breath. Uh, so I was like, yeah, so I was like, oof. Mm. And they're like, that's a that's a major sign of kidney failure and all this stuff. I was like, oof, that's a that's a harsh way to say goodbye to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> um. So she so she she uh, she dies uh, very young. Uh, like I said, she's only twenty like twenty six years old uh, when she dies on June seventh, nineteen thirty seven, and. Uh, she had been married three times. Uh, her first marriage did not last very long. That was actually before she moved to Hollywood. Uh, her second marriage was to a guy named Paul Byrne. Uh, her third marriage um, did not last very long either. That was lasted about a year as well, and then that was um, uh, consecrated. And then they had a, uh, a fourth guy that she was dating, and he basically paid for the whole funeral. Um, she's, she's laid to rest in Glendale, actually, in Glendale, California. Um, huge, huge, like marble mausoleum for her. The, he spent twenty five thousand dollars. This is nineteen thirty seven. Twenty five thousand dollars on her plot. Wow. Um, she had three nicknames, or at least three nicknames. The most popular was the blonde bombshell. Um, I know Marilyn Monroe gets that that moniker, but she was the original. Um, <laughs> uh, platinum blonde. Which was the the next one that was kind of the the what the the color that they they named her yeah uh, and then baby was the other one and that's actually on top of her the inscription on top of her mausoleum is our baby hmm. um, she was buried in a dress um, from the movie that she filmed called uh, libeled lady libeled lady. Uh, in one hand, she clutched a handful of gardenias, and in the other, a note from the guy that uh, paid for everything that said, Good night, my dearest darling. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, so she, were you going to say something? I'm sorry, what was that? I oh, know, I just was, aww. We, we both, aww. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah nice. it was really nice. <laughs> um, he actually had the, the, the plot set up so that he could be buried next to her. Um, but he didn't die until about 60 years later. So um, he was married by this point, and so he's married. Uh, he's buried with his third wife or whatever it was. So that actually didn't – that didn't happen. He just paid for this really expensive plot for her, and it's all for her. So, um, so yeah, so that, that leads us uh, – that's Jean Harlow. Um, she was one of the biggest um, grossing um, artists for – uh, for MGM Studios, uh, when 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 uh, she died, um, the the movie theater wanted to hire another actress to to play her part, and the actress that they they offered the role to was like absolutely not, like I don't even want to you know dis- disparage her her name or anything like that. Uh, what kind of person would do that? So the public really wanted to see this movie, and so they actually ended up filming the end of the movie by using. Uh, three different body doubles, oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. and they filmed them. They filmed the uh, the rest of it, released it, and it ended up being the second highest grossing picture of 1937, behind 
Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Oh, Crazy. wow. Wow, that's a trip. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, excuse me. Uh, so, that was Jean Harlow. Uh, obviously, a huge influence to movie stars around the world. She was one of the, the biggest movie stars of, of that, uh, at least the last six or seven years of her life. Um, she was very well-liked, it seemed. Uh, a lot of stories that I read about her seemed to be like, People really kind of, uh, like, her, meaning her peers uh, in Hollywood really adored her, um, thought she was a really good person, and just really liked her. She was very well-liked by her co-stars, so uh, not a lot of bad things to say about her, and um, just one of those people that came and went really quickly, but really made a huge impact um, on, the, on the actual industry, so pretty important woman. Um, she was uh, married three times, as I said to you. And um, during during that time, her second marriage, um, she married a gentleman named Paul Byrne. Now, Paul Byrne was actually Paul, born Paul Levy uh, on December 3rd, 1889, in what is now known as Hamburg, Germany. And uh, he is um, living in Germany until the, the uh, backlash against Jews. Uh, so the family moves to uh, New York to escape this. Uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he arrives in New York and, and they start to live there. And he um, joins the Academy of Dramatic Arts and gets into acting and realizes that acting really isn't for him. But while he's there, he meets another actress uh, whose name is uh, Dorothy, Dorothy Millette. And um, they strike up a relationship and, and move in with each other and live with each other. And it's not really clear whether they're officially married or if they were just common law marriage but either way it's 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 kind of known that she's with him mm -hmm. okay and uh she starts to show signs of mental instability uh during their marriage and they have a bit of a difficult time and she ends up um from what i understand she ends up basically being put into a sanitarium actually here in connecticut wow um and uh she's not like She's not left there, but she's in there for a few years. And uh, Paul says, you know, hey, I'm going to support you and I love you and I'll make sure that you're taken care of. But um, I'm moving out to California uh, to pursue, you know, a, 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 pursues a different career in, in cinema, but not necessarily acting kind of more behind the scenes. So uh, he moves up, he moves out to California and um he gets in. He gets in with MGM Studios, and he works his way up until he's basically um, a top producer for MGM. Um, during this time, uh, he, you know, uh, Jean Harlow is an up-and-coming actress, but again, she's she's still under contract with Howard Hughes, and he really he really believed in her. He really felt that she she could be a, an amazing actress that she does have skills and she's not just a, you know, a, another pretty face with a nice body uh, because that's kind of what she was known for. And, you know, kind of the same thing that befell Marilyn. Everyone looked at Marilyn as this hot chick and she was just like, no, I can really act. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what Jean was about. And Paul really supported that. So he got behind her, convinced MGM to buy out her contract from um, uh, Howard Hughes. And they do. And he gets her to come over. And at the same time, he's still he's still courting her. Uh, you know, he's really trying to get in with her, and she's she's all about it. 
And the public, <laughs> unfortunately for Paul, the public cannot figure out why this gorgeous woman is all about this short, squat, not particularly handsome guy. <laughs> uh, they're just they're they're constantly like, what is going on? What what does he have on her that she wants to be with him? Because clearly it's not his looks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they just kind of keep making it known that he is not an attractive guy <laughs> and he does not deserve her at all. <laughs> So the newspapers are hearing about this whirlwind romance that they're having, and he engage, he, uh, he proposes to her, and they're married like a week after they propose. So it happens really, really fast. Within two months of them being married, he's dead. Oh, now, wow. What happened in that two months, not much is known. Everyone kind of thought that the relationship was going well. Um and on the morning, about three o'clock in the morning, on the night of September fifth, nineteen thirty-two, uh, his butler walks into the bedroom or the bathroom and finds Paul Byrne uh, lying naked on the floor of the bathroom in front of a large mirror with a gun next to his head and a gun uh, dead from a gunshot wound to his head. Holy shit! Now, uh, that's an odd fat, uh, an odd scene. I'm sure to walk in on your boss completely naked. Mm-hmm. Um, also covered in his wife's perfume, which is a little odd. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he's he's dead. He's found with this with this note, a uh, 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 suicide note, next to him, and the note reads, "Dearest dear, unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you, and to wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul." And underneath, underneath his name, he writes, you understand last night was only a comedy. What? Yeah. What? Yeah, right? Weird. So when this butler finds his body, he does what any butler would do. He calls MGM Studios. <laughs> I thought you were going to say clean up. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. I thought you were going to be like, he cleans up. Well, I yeah. mean, yeah. I mean, that almost... <laughs> That almost makes sense at the time because of how powerful the studios were. And the studios really ran the city, you know. like That's true. You'd call your agent before you'd call the cops. Yeah. And be like, what do we Absolutely. do? Absolutely. Well, what how do we, we want to handle this, you know? That's interesting. Well, they call up They call up uh, MGM. He calls up MGM Studios and he says, listen, I've just found Paul Byrne. He's dead. You need to send somebody over here. So your favorite guy in mine, Louis B. Mayer. Yay. Uh, Anyway, what a spot-on shiny guy. Yeah. Uh, he sends over some fixers to come over to the house and um, do what they have to do. So these fixers come over, and they're at the house for about two hours before they officially call the police to, to come over and investigate. And when the police show up, here is he, here he is. He's lying on the floor. He's naked. He's got this gun. He's got this note. This is what this is the scene that you have arrived to, and this is the story that, that we're going to give you. And of course the police arrive and they see the scene and they take their notes and it's deemed a suicide. And the story that MGM tries to really push or to at least kind of put the thought forward into the public's mind is that Paul Byrne, poor Paul Byrne is impotent and cannot sexually satisfy his hot ass wife, Jean Harlow. Mm. So that's the story that they're pushing is that, yes, indeed, these the sexual problems were happening for the last two months. He's not able to satisfy her, and therefore 
uh, this is why he's written a suicide note, and this is why he has killed himself. Hmm. Right? So, weird. Now, when they're investigating the scene, apparently there's some, uh, the maid has found uh, around the pool area two wine glasses or champagne glasses or whatever, cocktail glasses, um, and a woman's bathing suit who did not fit Jean. Huh. The uh, the maid also, I'm sorry, is it the maid or is it the ground crew? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The cook, the cook sees an unknown woman on the property uh, during the evening. And the odd thing is that Jean Harlow is not at the house that night. She's actually at her mother's house. Um, so she's not on the property. So hmm, does Paul have a special guest at the house? Yeah, well, um, he doesn't specifically. What's going on? Yeah, he doesn't specifically say Jean Harlow in the note. He just says "dears, dear." Right. So. Dears, dear. A woman was uh, spotted by the cook on the on the property. Um, the butler says that he had heard talk of suicide from Paul, so this was not a surprise. However, the gardener uh, says. That's funny. I always thought that they seemed kind of happy with each other, um, and I never heard anything about any kind of suicide talk. I know that they did argue from time to time, hmm. um, but I never heard anything about suicide. So he contradicts what the butler has said. The cook says he sees an unknown woman, and the police have seen these glasses with this bathing suit. So there's a lot of strange clues what's going on because Jean's not in the house. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning real quick. Um, when Paul moves to New York, um, his father dies in 1908. They didn't say how his father dies, but his father dies in 1908. Mom commits suicide in 1920. Hmm. She drowns herself. What? Now, they put forth, at least one of the articles I read, they put forth that the speculation that the mother, his mother may have drowned herself in order to stop, stop Paul from marrying somebody. Jesus now, Christ. First that seems off, a bit how dramatic. Do you, how do you but, drown yourself? That's... Yeah, I know. That's that's a pretty severe thing. I mean, that's so. kind of a common like thing in literature that women would do to be dramatic and kill themselves, like Ophelia and, you know. Yeah, that's... There you go. Yeah. So maybe that was speculation, but apparently his, his mother did, did kill herself. She's, she'd committed suicide in 1920. Um, that pertains to something later in the story, or not really major, but it's just kind of a coincidence. Um... So let's go back to his, his first wife, or common-law wife, Dorothy Millet. Now, she gets out of the sanitarium, and she's tra- she travels to San Francisco. So she's up in San Francisco around, uh, around late August, early September in 1932. And he has written, you know, he's written her letters, and he's telling her that he's supporting her and whatnot, but he also tells her that um, he's now marrying... Jean Harlow, and now she's going to be in his will, and basically now his wife is his ex-wife is now cut off. Um, this is where the confusion comes in. They were never really able to to show if he was in fact married or if he did get divorced from her or whatever. That's where the confusion comes in. I could, I couldn't get really an exact answer on that. Um, but basically, he's cutting off his ex-wife and telling her, you know, I'm moving on. Mm-hmm. I love you, but I'm moving on. Uh, so the question is, did his ex-wife 
sneak down to Hollywood on that night? Did they get together, have drinks, talk about things, and she got upset of what was happening, and then shoot Paul? Um, And then MGM shows up and realizes that, oh my God, you know, Paul's ex-wife has murdered him. Our biggest cash cow movie star, Gene Harlow, is now involved in this major scandal. We can't have that for our studio. We can't have that for our star. Let's fix it and make it look like a suicide and nobody will know the wiser. Yeah. That's the big, um, you know, mystery. Is that really what happened? Because the next night, or the next morning, excuse me, um, she checks out of the hotel. So they have her on register being back in San Francisco the next morning. Now, for those of you who don't know how far of a drive it is from Los Angeles to San Francisco, you're looking at about a six-hour drive. This is 1932, so I don't know how fast cars were back there. So let's say let's say six to ten hours to drive there, which is doable. If you leave at 3 o'clock in the morning and get back in, you know what I mean, or to whatever time, his body was found at 3 a.m., so maybe the murder happened before that or a suicide happened before that. So what I'm trying to establish is that it is technically possible for her to get down to San, sorry, get down to L.A., drive up, back up to San Francisco, and make it look like you've been in San Francisco the whole time. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So she gets up, she checks out on the morning of September 6th, um, and then, uh, leaves the hotel. Uh, she'd been staying there for a while. She pays off all of her bills. She settles up with them, uh, and leaves. And she goes and she purchases a ticket on the Delta King river boat. Okay. So she gets on the boat. Um, it's an overnight thing. She's having dinner and uh, a waiter remembers seeing her and being kind of distraught and not eating anything and acting a bit strange. Um, in the middle of the night, about one o'clock in the morning, uh, a gentleman decides that he's going to take a, a night stroll on the deck before he goes to bed, and he sees a woman standing on top of the on the top deck, staring up at the sky and crying. Um, and then at three o'clock in the morning, the night watchman is walking around, and he finds a pair of shoes and like a hat and a dress or something like that on the deck, and 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 that's it. So when the more the, the next morning when the boat docks, uh, they start everybody disembarks except for her. They searched the boat looking for her, and they can't find it. And they found that she has indeed jumped off of the boat and killed herself, also drowning herself. Uh, and her body is actually found. Uh, she she disappears September sixth. She is found September fourteenth by two fishermen in the river. Wow. Okay. So Paul Byrne's mother, Paul Byrne, and his ex-wife have now all committed suicide, apparently. But it seems kind of weird that she would kill herself right after her husband has. So is it because she's distraught over her husband and now she's no longer in the will and is going to not have any support either financially or emotionally? Or is she upset that she murdered her husband and now feels guilty about it? Mm. So these are some strange coincidences that happened and will probably never be solved. Yeah. Um, but the reason that these questions came up, nobody really thought anything of it until a gentleman named Sam Marks or Samuel Marks uh, writes a book and says that he uh, was working for MGM at this time and he was at the house when the mur- when the suicide uh, fixers are sent in there and he p- uh, points a finger at Louis B. Mayer ordering a cover-up saying that 
we got to go in and make this, you know, right so that we don't lose Gene and to the, this whole, you know, not controversy, but scandal, yeah. you know? So he wrote a book about that, and that's kind of where this whole, um, you know, uh, story came into play. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, so definitely another kind of mystery that you've given me to kind of figure out and say, hey, it possibly could go both ways absolutely very easily. Yeah. Um, but definitely a, a very interesting coincidence. Yeah. You know? I mean, so. Yeah. Now we have the house that Paul Byrne and Gene Harlow have purchased in Hollywood that he has been either murdered or committed suicide. This tale ends back to uh, your friend and mine, um, Jay Sebring. Uh, Jay Sebring being the being one of the victims of the Charles Manson murders right. mm-hmm. uh, in the in the uh, Sharon Tate murder household. Um, and I, I'll just kind of reiterate kind of what you said about last week, but, uh, Sharon Tate is interviewed in a magazine, uh, and the, uh, the interviewer asks her, you know, have you ever had any kind of, you know, psychic experiences or paranormal experiences? And she says, yes, I'm dating my boyfriend at the time, Jay Sebring and Jay Sebring owns the house that Paul Byrne and Jean Harlow lived in and that Paul died in. And I'm spending the night in a bedroom and I wake up in the middle of the night and I see a ghostly figure of a man rummaging around my room, looking confused and paranoid and walking around in circles. And immediately it pops into her head that she realizes, oh my God, I think that's Paul Byrne. I clearly, I clearly she knows that he has died in this house. And that really freaks her out. So she runs out of the room and goes downstairs. And at, like you said last week, at the bottom of the stairs, she's she sees a, a ghostly vision of somebody tied to a banister with their throat slit, not really noticing it or knowing if it's a man or a woman, but mm-hmm. she clearly sees this person tied to tied and mutilated to a banister. And a year later, basically the same fate falls upon Paul or excuse me, upon Jay uh, in the murder of the Mansons. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, is the house haunted? Um, did she really see this thing? Well, she certainly, like you said, she talked about it in this magazine article, so it's a legit article that's out there. It's not one of those, I heard she said that at a party yeah. once. Right, right, yeah. Like, you know, it's down there for reals. Um, owners of the house after Jay died and sold the house. I don't know if he mur- I, I don't know if he owned the house when he was murdered. That's a good question. Um, hmm. But it was only a year before he died, so I would guess that he probably hadn't sold the house yet. Um, two other owners that owned the house in the 70s, reported many things happening to them. Uh, Amongst them, um, uh, cold spots in the house, um, the strong smell of perfume, which would be creepy because of the whole, you know, he was covered in her perfume when he died kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be creepy for me. And then um, hearing whispers, uh, one of one of the owners, the woman said that she heard somebody whisper in her ear, "Help me." Uh. <laughs> um, but they feel that the they feel that the ghost of Jean is more of a helpful ghost, uh, and and because you know she was such a nice person in real life that she's kind of continuing her good deeds. Both the owners said that one night they were sleeping and they both awoke at the same time, and when they turned to each other, they said, "Oh, I just had this weird dream," and the other. The other said, so did I, and they realized that they had both had the same exact dream, 
and the dream was that they they were in the bathroom of the house and there was a bathtub full of water and a hand came out of the water and reached up and pulled like um like the cord to the light bulb above the above the bathtub mm-hmm. and when when she when the hand pulled the cord um like electricity like shot out and like electrocuted the hand and then the hand went back into the water and that was the end of the dream and so they were like oh, that's that's kind of weird maybe we should you know kind of investigate that and so they called an electrician to come in and check the wiring in the bathroom and when he checked it he was like oh this this wiring is really really bad it's a good thing you called me because this could have started a really bad fire and you know he could have, could have died holy crap so was it Gene Harlow being like, hey, y'all got to check your wiring? You know? <laughs> <laughs> y'all don't want to be electrocuted in that tub. Was she Southern? I feel like she would uh, have like a trans. Well, she's from Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Also, she's an electrician. But, uh, but yeah, so they saw the freaky hand in the bathtub and, and, and it saved their lives. So. Wow. Wow, that's a crazy one. Man. Um, so yeah, so that's the uh, that's the the story of Gene Harlow and Paul Byrne, and the tragic the tragic the tragic story of the two of them. They both died very well. Paul yeah. was forty two when he died, and she was twenty six. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in an interesting side note, I thought this was kind of strange. I, I read about I, I read about ten different websites, um, just kind of trying to gather up all my information about Paul. Mm-hmm. And whenever I did any kind of searches on Paul. Um, on Paul himself, uh, basically, uh, you know, he was a nice guy. Uh, you know, yeah, he wasn't the most attractive guy, but he believed in Jean and really wanted her to become a, a, a real actress. So, you know, for the most part, it seemed like a pretty normal guy. But when I started trying to do some research on the, the ghost story of this, uh, or ghost side of this story, whenever I read something, a lot of times they would say that Paul severely beat Jean. Oh my goodness. Um, so I thought that was very interesting that all the ghost stories were like, yes, he was awful to her, beat her, threw her around, you know, was just an awful person to her. And that never, ever came across in any of the interview or any of the reviews or stories that I read about Paul. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So what's the real story then? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, there's so many, when, when he died, she didn't talk about it at all. She really was very quiet about the whole situation. Yeah. Um, you know, she didn't, she didn't talk much about it. Obviously when he was buried and all that, she was there and stuff, but there really wasn't a lot that the studio kind of kept her quiet on the whole situation. Yeah. And, um, she didn't talk about it publicly. I mean, so. him being abusive could be legitimate because like, clearly he didn't treat his first wife that great. I mean, he put her in a, sanator- a sanatorium and, and pieced out yeah. and then goes and, you know, dates this movie star. And then clearly he, you know, fucked her up in the head enough for her to, like, come and kill him. <laughs> you know? In, yeah. a, in a very, like, Black Widow sort of way. Yeah. Like, it sounds like she <laughs> seduced him and, like, you know, got him drunk and then like shot him, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then just I mean, couldn't I, cope. And yeah. I really didn't get the impression that Paul kind of fucked his ex-wife over. I mean, he really, it really sounded that like he did care about her and he wanted to take care of her. Um, you know, they had a couple of notes, like the last notes that were written to her 
And it was all like, you know, I love you. I support you. You know, um, I mean, maybe he wasn't a great to her, you know, I mean, the whole like getting married to Jean Harlow while you're still married to somebody else kind of bit. Mm-hmm. But again, that that wasn't it was it was very it, it wasn't a, a concrete fact that he was, in fact, married, at least legally. Um, but he was with her for a long time. So obviously the law looked at it as a common a common law marriage. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I thought that was I thought that was very interesting that, you know, uh only in the ghost stories did he severely beat her. So um, that was kind of weird. It, it did say that um, when I was talking to you about her not wanting to come out and talk about it, um, when she was working for uh, for Howard Hughes, he really wanted to use her to – he was trying to promote the hell out of her. That was mm-hmm. when the whole blonde hair thing came in. Like she started dyeing her hair super blonde, and um, they had a contest for uh, women to try and match her hair color. And if a, hair could, if a hairdresser could – match her hair color then they were going to win a prize and nobody won um, <laughs> but uh they uh they had this he really was trying to use her to promote all these films and she wanted her to go out and do all these like press releases and stuff and she was not about that she was really like she did not want to go out you know do that so mm-hmm. she seemed like she was kind of a private you know a private lady um and maybe maybe her grief was true maybe she really did have a lot of grief for her her dead husband and she just didn't want to talk about it you know yeah so sad story though very sad story especially with her uh getting so sick and not you know not knowing what was wrong with her until the very last minute yeah yeah i I didn't realize it was that young too that's crazy pretty rough Mm -hmm. so there you go that's the story and the house does still exist um by the way, the uh, Gene Harlow, Paul Byrne house, that, that still oh, does nice. exist. I, I don't think anybody famous owns it now. It's a small little house. It's not nothing major, but it's in Beverly Hills somewhere. Hmm. Um, I think it's like in Benedict Canyon or something like that. I, oh, I forget. Very cool. um, but yeah, still visit to this day. Nice. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was a good one. That's good. That was a very sad way to end this podcast. So sure, yeah, I got to think about that moving forward yeah. <laughs> with our I story. Mean, it's kind of hard, I guess. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is this is we're and not. Then in it became a ghost, and everything <laughs> became great. Now, I ask you this um, before before we get off topic or uh, finish up this thing. Now, you had said earlier that in the beginning of the podcast that these were all connected in some way through aviation. Now. It, did I miss anything in my story that no. was related, or, no. or was it the only connection for the stories, at least from my from my story, was that Howard Hughes uh, was involved with her? That was it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know if I missed something story wise about about anything about, with aviation or planes. Oh, wait, or she she was a astronaut. Sorry. <laughs> 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 totally missed that. Yeah. No, that's you okay, did exactly exactly what I wanted. <laughs> No, that, was, to, uh, to say. that was a good one, Tia. Nicely done. Nice. Now, Tia, you've heard that story before? You you heard about Paul Byrne before? I have, but it had been a while since I had heard a lot of that. Um, yeah, I saw you like, reacting to some of it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know all of it, you know. Um, so maybe like five years ago, I had watched a YouTube... Uh, should I just say who it is? I watched... Gabalosis's uh Gabalosis. Gabalosis. Ga- Gab Gabrielle Volante. I don't know. Ga- uh, a, a Gab- I, she's yeah, she's, she's a great. YouTuber and she does like a lot of like uh 
starlet old Hollywood stories. So I had heard uh, a little bit about Paul Byrne then. Uh, recently, my friend Kim brought it up and she Kim was trying to tell me because Kim and I kind of have been going back about like some of these stories and uh, she's reading these old Hollywood books, which I'm kind of bummed. Kim had my book of early universal so it was kind of a struggle to like look up this frank stite story and i'm like damn it i know it's in that book and kim has it right now uh but kim recently was like oh have you heard of paul byrne and gene harlow and i i was like no don't don't tell me anything (laughs) yes i have but don't tell me but i just got this new book uh it's called a cast of killers and it's about some murder mystery true crime murder mystery that happened in old hollywood that was like covered up by like a bunch of people so that one's gonna be interesting and i will read it this time (laughs) (laughs) so instead of just putting it on the shelf over there with all the other ones Mm -hmm. um yeah so this was this was a good one uh so our assignments for next week are all Everybody knows. Everybody already knows. They're secretive. But it's uh, to give the viewers a hint. It is going to be the rock and roll episode. And that's it. Insert rock and roll drums. So, yeah, I'm excited about my story. And, yeah, it'll be fun. Mine's cool. Mine has to do with the occult and, you know, some famous rock stars and some rock stars you've absolutely never heard of and it's gonna be great nice um so yeah thank you so much uh hollywood's haunted the podcast is the collective work of the owners and employees of hollywood's haunted tours and it is available on iHeartRadio, itunes or wherever the hell you get your podcasts subscribe like and share because sharing is scary for more information on hollywood's haunted visit our website at hollywoodshaunted.com this is me, Tia and Jameson, wishing you guys nothing. We're out. Bye. Yeah, bye. <laughs> Hollywood's Haunted. The podcast. Hollywood's Haunted.